as I said before, this is the book that I had just finished reading about maybe a week ago now. It's called Native Sun. It's by Richard Wright. I'll just start off by giving like just some of the points that I had written down from way before. Basically, um, Richard Wright was born on September 4th, uh, 1908 in uh, Roxy, Mississippi. He was a son of a sharecropper who was named Nathaniel Wright and a school teacher uh, named Ella Wilson. He was mostly raised by his mother um, shortly after the age of, um, of his father passing at the age of five. So his life was just consisted of constantly moving from one point to another. Um, he did manage to have, to have a, a ninth grade education. And he was a vocarious reader. He was just constantly absorbing whatever knowledge he could get at the time. But he kind of kept that to himself as far as that being a public part of his life. He began reading some of the contemporary literature and like the commentary of this author called H.L. Mencken. And this is like a fun fact that I threw in. He used to use like these library cards from his uh, co-workers and they used to forge notes for him so that he can rent out any text that he wanted to from the library. Um, and shortly after that, that was like his early life. So probably like his like early teens into like the early 20s. And he was starting to see the effects of like the Jim Crow laws and saw how, you know, restricted the lifestyle was to be a, uh, a black man at the time. So he left... Mississippi, and he made his way up to Chicago, which is where he kind of really started to um, pursue this writing career that he wanted. But he still was working kind of like some odd jobs at the time. And like many of the other Americans at the time, he was, you know, seeing the effects of the Great Depression, um, most importantly, capitalism at, or American capitalism. And he grew frustrated with that. So that eventually led to him joining the communist movement in 1932. Just to put a little bit of context. So soon after that, he joined a project called the Federal Writers Project in 1935. And he wrote some short stories during this time, but they weren't published until after his death. And by 1937, uh, Richard Wright had moved to New York City where he saw that he had a better chance to get published with the whole Harlem Renaissance. Um, and he became a Harlem editor for a paper called the Daily Writer. And then that's when he found success with his, I believe it's his first published work or no, no, no. It was a collect, it was a collection of, of short stories that was called uncle Tom's children. And that was in 1938. Um, and then from there, following that published work, that's when Native Sun comes into play, and that was in 1940. Native Sun sold over 200,000 copies within its first months of uh, publication, got some awards, and eventually after he released um, Native Sun, he wrote a essay which was actually included in this copy that I have called How Bigger Was Born. Bigger Thomas was the name of the protagonist of this novel. And he, quote, says that he needed to write a book that bankers' daughters would not be able to read and feel good about. So it does talk a lot about some of the, I guess you could say, the 
the difference in lifestyles and he kind of puts it on like the play for everyone to read. So shortly after that, he pretty much was able to travel the world with the success of Native Son. So he traveled to like many places that treated African-Americans a little bit more equally, use that word a little loosely. Uh, so places like Mexico, Argentina, Africa, and kind of what I wrote at this last point, he kind of found that he, he's, he found himself like disillusioned with white America and the Communist Party. So from there, he moved to Paris where he continued to write. And then um, by November 28th, 1960, that's when he um, passed away by a heart attack. So that was a little, little mini biography by Richard Wright. So now I'll just give a brief summary of this or of the novel and see where we can go from to discuss of what you two think. And if you guys have any questions, well, I'll be, I'll try to answer them to the best of my ability. <laughs> Uh, so the book is not divided by chapters. It's divided into three books. Book one, which is the beginning, is titled Fear. Book two is titled Flight. And book three is titled Fate. But it all focuses around our protagonist, uh, Bigger Thomas. So Bigger Thomas is your average... African-American teenager, I believe that they want to say that like probably around like the age of like 18 or so. And he's feeling, you know, very disenfranchised, very restricted with his current life in the United States. The setting takes place in Chicago in the 1930s. And Bigger Tom has kind of struck some luck um, because he landed a job uh, with a very wealthy American family on the northern side of Chicago, but he's feeling very unmotivated to try and pursue this job because his life just consisted of, you know, hanging out with his friends um, who kind of run this little like local gang. So they would do like petty crimes, you know, they would rob somebody, they would break into these abandoned like apartments on the south side of Chicago. And that's pretty much shit with the friends. Yeah, pretty much, honestly. (laughs) So that's what he was just accustomed to. So his mother is kind of, you know, trying to push this job on him because they obviously live in a very um, impoverished neighborhood. They lived in like a one bedroom apartment and it was bigger, his mother and two of his younger siblings in a one bedroom. So Obviously, the living conditions are not what most people would think it would be luxurious. Um, so around that time, the day progresses and he interacts with his friends, you know, and he has this, it's, it's set up very early on in the book that Bigger has a egotistical attitude, kind of having to show that like, he has to be very tough on the exterior to make it through life. And that happens when his friends sort of challenge him and they kind of push him because they were used to doing, you know, to committing black on black crime. But in the beginning of the book, they had said that they wanted to rob 
a local grocery store that was owned by a white man. And since they had never done that, they thought that, you know, it would be like a, you know, like a prideful thing to do. Like, oh, we finally committed something that no other black man would do. But eventually it, you know, it shows that Bigger is also too, is also afraid to do that, even with the help of like his other friends. So he eventually kind of just like backs out of that and kind of makes up an excuse as to why he didn't go through with it. You know, the typical like, oh, like I got, I got busy over here. Like something held me back. And then he eventually makes his way to um, the job interview that he has. So the job was offered by a very wealthy man called Henry Dalton. Now, Henry Dalton is the father of the Dalton family. And they are the, I guess I would call them like the cookie cutter, like liberal family for the time. Mm -hmm. So they worked with the NAACP. Henry Dalton was like a real estate owner. So he owned like multiple complexes. And he donated a lot to African-American programs. And his goal or the trend that was very established with him was that he always tried to give disenfranchised black men opportunities. So he would always employ them to be like their chauffeur because they are a wealthy family. And usually the people that he would employ, they would stay with him for, for an extended period of time. And they even point out in the interview when he when Henry interviews um, Bigger that the last chauffeur that they had, they put him through night school. He learned to trade. That person worked with that family for, I think, like 30 plus years until he like moved away. So, you know, at this point in time, things are kind of running the course. But then that's when we are introduced to Mary Dalton. Now, Mary Dalton is the daughter of, Hen of Henry, and she is the more, I guess you could say, leftist character in the family. So she is like, you know, reading these communist like pamphlets. She is criticizing, you know, her father's choices and criticizing like that he isn't more involved and he doesn't try like he doesn't try to go further with aiding African Americans of the city. Own departments is he like a low key slumlord or something like that? He, yeah, I was kind of I was gonna get to that. Like the apartments that he owns, they're not up to par with what's on like the northern side, you know. And that's actually another thing too that um, that the narrative points is like there's a line where like it's blacks only. And that line is like very, very like, it's a very poor neighborhood. And then like once you cross that line, that's when it's like, oh, that's, this is where all the white people live. Like this is where the houses are more established. They have heating, they have, you know, all the other things that like are necessary to live, to live comfortably. If I'm not mistaken, in Chicago, it's still like that. Yeah, I, I believe that. So during that interview, like, Mary tries to make herself comfortable with Bigger Thomas and she is very, very much pushing the boundaries, you know, of how comfortable she can be with Bigger because all of his life, Bigger Thomas kind of like was conditioned to treat white Americans with like respect, always calling them sir, um, always calling them ma'am, treating himself like a secondary citizen and then putting them at the top. 
And then here comes Mary Dalton, who is this, she's described as like a very pretty, very outgoing girl. And she's doing like, I'm here to support you. I'm not like other, like pretty much like, I'm not like other people, you know, like I'm, I'm different, you know, <laughs> not like other girls, <laughs> not like other girls. <laughs> so then from there, Henry pretty much tells him that, you know, what his job duties are, like what his schedule is going to be like, what days he is like free to do whatever he wants. And like, kind of explain to him like, Oh, like this is how like the family works. You know, you'll just pretty much just be driving us from here and there. And then you'll have like Sunday for yourself or, you know, or whatever. So then the task for that night, this is all happening the same day was to pretty much just take Mary to her night school. And from there, like he would just have to like obey what she, what she wanted to do. So the night comes and pretty much, Everything is going smoothly. He gets the car ready and he's ready to take Mary to her school. But she changes the course of the night and she goes and tells him, oh, I want you to go to go to this other like office. And it was the office of the Communist Party. Um, and that's where they go and pick up her, her significant other, whose name is Jan Erlone. It was a little weird to get used to that name when I was reading this. Jan Erlone. Jan Erlone. And... That's when, you know, that level of comfort is sort of pushed uh, even further because, you know, they're talking of like, oh, like we want to, you know, things are going to change. You know, the revolution's going to happen. Everyone's going to be equal. You won't be so disenfranchised anymore. And they kind of give like some comments that are a little like questionable. So they'll both Jan and Mary tell bigger that they want to go eat where his people eat so he's kind of like unsure of what that means he means you people yeah that's 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 literally what that's literally what they said they're like oh we want to know what you people eat and bigger is finally like well there's this like diner that i usually go to in my area and the two of them are ecstatic they're like oh yes please take us there like we want to experience the different culture you know and they finally go there and bigger is very like primed to just stay in the car. That's what he wants to do. Doesn't want to get out. He doesn't want to be seen with these two people. And eventually the two of them are just like, come on, like just come in with us. It'll be a good time. Just relax. Nothing's going to be bad. If someone for some reason, like questions you like, we'll take care of it. And then feeling that he has to do it because it's his job. He goes along with it. And then finally, when they're in there, you know, they're drinking and people start to notice that Bigger is with these two, these two white people and they've never seen them before. So when people start to notice like, oh, hey, that's Bigger Thomas, they kind of try to say hi and like Bigger kind of just shoves them off and he doesn't want to want people to acknowledge that he's there. So the night goes on, they're drinking and eventually they drop off Jan at, I believe it was his house and they make their way back into the, the Dalton's house where Mary is significantly drunk and pretty much bigger. Thomas is trying to get her into her room. Now this is where things get a little, like this is where it kind of like leads up to a very climactic point of this book of the entire novel. So while she's drunk, he's getting her in her bed. And they kind of have like a little intimate moment 
And then Baker can hear that the footsteps of the mother, oh, she just goes by Mrs. Dalton. So, um, so they, he hears the footsteps of Mrs. Dalton and keep in mind that she is also a blind woman. So when he hears the footsteps of her, he's kind of goes into like a, a fight or flight mode and he realizes, oh shit, I'm in the, I'm in the bedroom of my employer's daughter at like two in the morning. She's drunk. And if they find me, they're probably going to, they're probably going to think that I'm trying to do something to her. So he panics. And while she's drunk, she's kind of like warding off or whatever. And he eventually ends up suffocating her to death because he's trying to silence, he's trying to silence her so that she doesn't say anything. And Mrs. Dalton eventually ends up in the room that they're in. And she kind of goes over, mind you, she doesn't know that like Baker's in there. She just assumes that uh, Mary's in there and she kind of smells the room because, you know, when you drink a lot of alcohol, you eventually end up smelling of alcohol. And she kind of assumes that, Oh, Mary's just drunk out of her mind. She just passed out while bigger was trying to keep her quiet. You know, he suffocated her to death. And that's when the panic really start like starts to come in because now bigger Thomas is in a situation where like, Oh shit, I just killed this white girl. There's no way out of this. And then he starts to plot, plot things to, to see if he can find a way out of this scenario that he's in. So at first he's thinking like, okay, I can take this body and I could go put it somewhere else or I can go and dump it in the river or take it over here and bury it. And eventually he just ends up leading to finding where the furnace is of the house. And eventually decides that it's best to burn her body in the house furnace. And while he's in the middle of doing that, of of putting the body in the furnace, he realizes that he can't get the entire body inside of the furnace. So he eventually like does the impossible and cuts the head of Mary, of Mary's body and throws it into the furnace. That took a left turn. I know, right? I remember, yeah, seriously. I, remember when I, I remember when I was rereading that part because I had read this book, at least the first book for a class a long time ago. And I remember I was just like, holy shit, how am I just supposed to read just the beginning of the book and not continue with how the events unfold? Yeah. yeah. I can't imagine. <laughs> holy shit. So he does it though. It's just, wow. I just love how, like, the liberal context that they're all within is Mm -hmm. kind of, like, the main driving force of the conflict here. Mm -hmm. It's just the fact that, like, oh, it's, like, this nice, rich white guy who will, like, hire you and do this, when in reality, like, he's really still, like, making this man obliged to, like, apply his labor for his family Mm-hmm. And like sends yeah. him along with his daughter. And like you said, he thought kind he was just supporting. doing his job. So he has to. Mm-hmm. And, and even the, the two kids, they're kind of just, it's, it's a bit of appropriation, isn't it? They're like, Oh, we want to go where you eat. And that's kind of his undoing. They just can't handle their shit. They get their rocks off on like leaving the, the black experience or whatever. Yeah. They, they, mm-hmm. they also said, um, there was a point 
during that night where I believe like Mary, you know, had said like, oh, like I've, I've gone to this place, I've traveled here and I've traveled here. And yet your people, like we live so close, but we're so far apart. I'm just like, wow, talk about like showing the luxuries that you have that not a lot of people have because of the, you know, the difference of income, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Jesus. talk about reading the room. <laughs> yeah. So that's where book one ends. Book one ends with um, Bigger Thomas pretty much getting rid of Mary's body. Book two immediately starts with the word flight. And as we can assume, flight is just how he's going to get out of this. And at this point, Bigger is just trying to come up with different ways to get out of this scenario where he isn't going to die. And he is essentially thinking of ways like, okay, like, so I got rid of her body. You know, I was told that the following day I had to go and run this errand for her. Okay. So when the, the rest of the family wakes up, I'll tell them, oh, Mary had already gone to the errand that she needed to, uh, to attend to. I'll be in the clear. I'll just have to take the last of her things and take it to the train station. And then that's when I'll say like, oh, that was the last time I saw her. And things kind of seem like they're, you know, they're heading in the right direction. But obviously there are some kinks and turns that kind of happen during this portion of the book where people are starting to question like, oh, like, where's Mary? Like, how come she didn't say goodbye to us? Why was the car left outside? Usually like the car has stayed indoors. How was her night class? You know, you guys showed up a little bit late and all these little things that kind of just are piling up on Bigger's like conscious. And he's just trying to be as cautious as possible. So from there, Henry pretty much calls in a private detective that works for him. And, you know, he's just kind of like telling him the scenario of like, oh, my daughter kind of just left. Like she doesn't really normally do that unless it's kind of for like attention. And when the private investigator confronts Bigger, he's kind of like interrogating him. So pretty much once he's, once Bigger is being interrogated by the private investigator, he eventually kind of comes up with a lie and he finds out that he could possibly put the blame on Mary's disappearance on her friend Jan. So he comes up with this like plot, like yesterday I was with Mary, but then she eventually told me to go and pick up Jan, this other guy that I don't even know. And they were talking about all this communist stuff. And it, 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 does, it does show a little bit of like the, the red scare of the time. So like eventually we learn that the private investigator has a more deep hatred for communist reds than he does for African-Americans. So the private investigator is like 100% set on like, as the book says, it's the work of the Reds. They're the ones who kidnapped Mary and they're the ones that are just trying to find a way for us people to fund their party. And at this point, Bigger thinks that he's in the clear. He's like, oh, okay, I got it all set. Like these people didn't think that I did this. So I'm almost in the clear. And eventually... Bigger kind of thinks of like, well, I, I've done the impossible. I've done where no man or where no black man has gone. I have killed the daughter of a wealthy family and I'm going to get away with it. And I know where her body is and no one's going to find it. 
So I might as well try and get as much out of this as possible. So he eventually forges a ransom letter, cruelly written, saying like, oh, we have your daughter. She's fine. Uh, We just want money. And he signs it red, you know, to kind of indicate that it's the Communist Party. And he drops off that letter in the family's house. And the, the father, Henry, finds a letter and he's kind of shocked. He's like, I see that this is their demands. I'm just going to go ahead and give them the money so that way I can just get my daughter back. And here's where things kind of turn even more. So at this moment, the house is flooded with, with um, where people that are working for the newspapers, photographers, investigators, the house is full. And they're kind of doing like a little, like a last minute search of the house to see if they missed anything. Well, while they go down in the basement where the furnace is, they eventually realize that the house is not as warm as it normally is because the book takes place during the wintertime. So one of the photographers tells Baker like, oh, hey, can you like fix up the furnace? Because it's not blowing air. Like you got to like, you know, empty out the ashes because it's probably full. So Bigger is stressing at this point and he realizes that like, oh shit, how am I going to get rid of like all these ashes or how am I so sure that the whole body uh, has been burned at this point? And eventually he goes and checks to see that the whole body has gone. It's been burned to a crisp, but he still has to like change out like the, the ashtray. And eventually the ashtray of the furnace falls down and the private investigators are kind of just like, well, that's kind of weird. Like, it looks like it hasn't been changed in like a couple of days. And eventually like, you know, they're kind of just cleaning up the mess and they realize that in the ashes, some bone residue from Mary's body is still there. And they start to see that, that it has one of Mary's earrings in there. So they're kind of connecting one thing to the other and they realize, oh shit, this is the remains of Mary's body. She's been burned to a crisp. And the entire room is flooded with even more people. And eventually that's when Bigger just storms out of the room. Like he can't handle being in there because everyone is already kind of on like the idea of she was burned in her own house. Someone in the house has to have done it. And it was definitely not the family that did it. Yeah. Yeah. Ouch. So now that Bigger has fled the house, he pretty much has to skip town. The ransom that he thought that he was going to get, he wasn't going to get. So now he's like, I have to find a way to skip town. And he goes to his girlfriend's house. His girlfriend doesn't really play like a huge part in the story. She's kind of just like a secondary character. And she's the only one that knows of like what he did even before like he came up with the idea of like the ransom note. And he tells her like, I'm going to skip town. And since you're the only person that like knows that I did this, I'm going to take you with me. And she is like panicking throughout the entire time, not sure of what her life is going to be like. And eventually the two of them make their way into this abandoned apartment building. They're like, okay, we'll just stay the night in here and we'll, wait until things have cooled down a little bit to see if we can skip town. 
however things don't cool down because now there's a citywide manhunt for bigger thomas and that's what the, the book shows too that like in every newspaper that he reads it'll say something like oh we've looked in this area of town from this area these are the areas that we still haven't searched um and we will find this criminal and eventually the people find out where bigger thomas is and they close in on him in the abandoned building that he's in and they eventually capture him. And that's where the second book ends with the capture of bigger Thomas. And then finally, last book fate, which is essentially just the case of bigger Thomas. And that's when things are kind of, it's kind of just like a retelling of the story in my honest opinion, because it's just the court finding out like what events led to what, who's tied into who, and re retelling the, the course of events in a court setting. But the thing that I want to talk about most is that there's like a very different change in the tone of the book. So the entirety of the book is told from the perspective of the bigger Thomas. And we have this voice that is very like very tough, very authoritative, very um, gritty. And everything kind of changes at this point because at this point we are introduced to another character called Boris Max. And he is the lawyer that will be defending Bigger Thomas. And the way that he comes into story is because he's affiliated with the Communist Party. And Jan pretty much tells Bigger Thomas, hey, I have this great lawyer. He's helped us out in the past. He'll help you out too. He understands your struggle. And they have a very intimate conversation between Boris and Bigger Thomas before the case starts. And Boris is kind of trying to reach out to Bigger Thomas saying, hey man, like I'm just trying to help you out. I understand how the struggles that you have, like I have my own personal struggles too because he's a Jewish American. There's a lot of prejudice against Jewish people. So he understands that there is some struggle that, that there's connected to the two of them. And he acknowledges that like bigger Thomas is, he still has this guard up because of the complexion of his skin. Like, I don't care if you're a Jewish person, you're still white to me. When the time comes to the court session, and that's when we hear the side of Bigger's plea, where he's trying to give his case and stand for uh, his innocence. The way that Boris's plea is written, it almost sounds like Richard Wright is directly explaining his thoughts and explaining how he sees the world and how his experience has been growing up in a scenario that was very much like Bigger Thomas's. So as I was saying, the, the tone of Boris's like plea kind of changes the entirety of how the rest of the story is told. And the entire plea takes up like a good portion of the book. I want to say maybe 15 to 20 pages. I remember mm-hmm. I was reading this. And I was like, wow, he's still going. He's, this is not going to end at any point soon. Like it's very emotional. It's very motivational. And again, like he's just talking about different 
environmental factors that kind of led to bigger's bigger's choices you know essentially saying that like look bigger was conditioned to do this crime he lived a life that was not comfortable he he knew early on that this was the best that things were going to get if anything living in an impoverished area leads to crime people don't don't commit crime because they want to it's because they lack resources and that's what i found i was like holy shit like this still resonates a lot to this day and this book was written decades ago and let me just read one little section right here for you just so that way you can kind of get a feeling of what it sounds like so it reads yet he saw and felt but one life and that one life was more than a sleep a dream life was all life had he knew that he would not wake up sometime later after death and sigh at how simple and foolish his dream had been the life he saw was short and his sense of it goaded him he was seized with nervous eagerness he stood up in the middle of the cell floor and tried to see himself in the relation to other men a thing he had always feared to try to do so deeply stained was his own mind with the hate of others for him with this new sense of the value of himself gained from Max's talk, a sense fleeting and obscure, he tried to feel that if Max had been able to see the man in him beneath those wild and cruel acts of his acts of fear and hate and murder and flight and despair, then he too would hate. And if he were they, just as how he was hating them and they were hating him, for the first time in his life, he felt ground beneath his feet and he wanted to stay there. So eventually Boris gives this magnificent statement and you think, oh, he's going to get out of it. He's going to survive. Like this case is like clear, like you can't top that. It is the crescendo of the book. This is where justice is served and he is like free of his crimes at the best, given the the air of the time. You think, oh, Baker's just going to, live in prison for a little bit and then that'll be it and that's what the goal was for boris Mm -hmm. he was trying to get bigger to to survive this ordeal and the opposing lawyer pretty much just channels into like the hatred of the courtroom saying shit like this guy's a fucking animal he knows why he did these crimes why would he do this if he did this he knew what the end game was going to be for him. He was going to walk out of here with all this money. You really think that this guy feels that like he needs to kill people to make a living? Like he had a job that was going to give him a better life and he fucked that up. That's on him. And all these very, very ugly things that this author is saying, and it's fucking disgusting. And, mm-hmm. and eventually he ends up losing the case and Bigger is sentenced to death. and at the very end of the book boris is kind of like he walks into bigger's cell feeling very defeated and he kind of tries to reach out to bigger and saying like hey man like we can try and do this like i can extend the case you won't be sentenced to death so soon like i can do all in my power to try and help you out i just want to see you thrive and i want to see you survive this and eventually Bigger 
comes to terms with what his fate is and realizes this is it. This was all that I knew was going to happen. From the very beginning, I knew early on that the only way I was going to go out of this world was being sentenced to death or in prison. There was no other way out because that's just how the life is for someone of my color, for someone who doesn't make a lot of money, for someone who is conditioned to live a certain lifestyle. And that's the end of the book. He just comes to term with what's happened. Yeah, that, that's really heavy, man. <laughs> it's a it's a really heavy book. And there's a reason why this book is on like the Black Panthers reading list. Because I remember I had I had seen that list like a while back and I saw a lot of these other texts, like the autobiography of Malcolm X, a couple other essays, and finally at the very last one, it was Richard Wright's Native Son. And I'm like, huh, like I already knew of this the significance of this book and how like powerful it could be. But the fact that it was on like the reading list of the Black Panther Party of like the 60s makes it all the more important of oh shit, this book still has a lot of themes, has a lot of qualities that describe the life of a black man, even in today's day of age in 2020. Mm-hmm. I something I took away from it a lot was just like the sense of recognition in it of like what is going on and how things do work. And just like kind of the dichotomy of at the beginning, like you said, he kind of knows and recognizes where his life will end up. Mm -hmm. But you don't necessarily recognize that like, because you expect that that's why you're living your life the way you are and like the actions you take. And the recognition of that towards the end when um, then that passage you read just where he was like, if this guy can see the good in me, see through all of this, then it almost helped him recognize the good in himself, even though, like you said, it's just circumstances that are kind of forcing him to act this way. He never really had a choice in it. And that kind of also feeds back into the liberal context of it, of not having a choice in your life. Right. This is as good as it gets. You should feel lucky, kid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, um, it's, it's that entire feeling of, you know, I kind of thought of like that whole argument of, oh, well, if you're stealing for, for your family or to feed your family, like that's not really a crime. That's just you surviving, you know? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people think like, oh, like stealing is bad. You should never do that. It's in the Bible that thou shall not steal. But it's like, dude, you got to understand, like, sometimes life is not all pretty. You know, life isn't going to hand you the, the answer to get out of scenario A. Like, and that's what, in Bigger's case, it's the truth. He had to have a tough exterior to survive in the conditions that he was in. He had to commit crimes on his own people to to make ends meet, to get a little bit of money to make for food or to do the things that provide the, a little bit of like happiness in his life. Mm-hmm. And that was something else I, I never even thought about and was kind of like a, like a voila moment for me was when you kind of pointed out that them participating in black on black crime was mostly because of the legal repercussions they knew they would face if they committed crimes against white businesses. Mm -hmm. And so it was almost like a safer alternative, right? which 
when you hear the arguments nowadays about like, oh, what about black on black crime? It's like, well, what the, I guess the historical context of that, like what, what was the other option, you know, Mm -hmm. like do the crime that is very likely to end up with them getting put to death or something that's going to probably fly under the radar and just be considered like gang violence. Yeah. That the book actually points that out that in one of the, um, in the beginning where like the police there, like when they hear of a black on black crime, they're kind of just like, well, whatever. That's just, you guys got to do that on your own. But when it's a, well, but when it's a black on white crime, then it's all hands on deck. Everyone, like we got to figure out who this person is and we got to serve justice. Mm-hmm. So it's a very powerful book. I encourage anyone who is interested in, not just in like fiction, but just like a good, like social, socially charged book to read it. Mm -hmm. Because again, like the messages that it has, the, the characters that it has, and like the, the reception that it's had in the past. There's a quote in here by the author, James Baldwin, who says, no American Negro exists who does not have his own bigger Thomas living in his skull. So my my take from that quote is that like there's these people that that have this this character that is flawed within them and that wants to have a a better life but given the circumstances of the time and even to this day there's a lot of things that prevents you from achieving a better life yeah and i think with that too even in the modern day, we have kind of the concept of like the model minority. And when like, that's the most you can like hope to achieve is kind of living up to other people's expectations. You don't even have like an option to self-determine still, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's still, you're trapped in a box. I, I think that's kind of a shame, you know, that we have such heavy expectations of and I guess they're just stereotypes of how people are supposed to act, you know, mm-hmm. and that they're just so prevalent in our culture and that they last so, so long. Like you said, it's still poignant. This book was written so long ago and it's still completely applicable. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, I think that's all that I have to say about the book. I I just bought it just because I wanted a physical copy of it, but you can find online resources to, to read the book. You know, there's PDF files everywhere, but if you're like me who wants to have like the physical book, you can find the book anywhere, Barnes and Nobles, order it. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. It it seems like a good read. I'll have to pick it up sometime or check it out online if I can. Oh yeah, for sure. It's sick. Cool. Well, it was good. It was good talking, man. I'll see you next week then. Yeah, for sure.